Matt McInerney, New York. Andy Mangold, Baltimore, Maryland. Dan Auer, San Francisco. Every week, the three of us call in and record a conversation about the larger scope of design and everything related. Here we go. Gentlemen, how was your week? Fantastic. How was yours? Busy, but but good. Uh, it was it was a news week this week. I feel like we uh, we saw everything in the world happen, and I, I'm just excited to jump into it. There's a lot of things at the top of the dock. I uh, I started watching. I know I'm really late to the party on this, but I just started watching Newsroom. Uh, a couple days ago. Oh, I'm late to that party as well. I started the episode. Yeah, I started the free episode, um, but I haven't. I haven't really gotten that far into it. I'm three episodes deep, and I'm just already super enamored with it. I usually don't really respond to dramatic television shows. Like pretty much comedy is the only thing I really like in television. But mm-hmm. this show is different. It's really sort of got me snagged, and it's also got me all misty eyed about our podcast because I feel like in a lot of ways we're trying to do for design. What Will is trying to do for news, you know what I mean? No, I don't, but uh, I will soon, I guess. Well, you will <laughs> soon. You will soon. I mean, it's basically a story of a guy who is an anchor, and he's sort of stuck in the world of constantly making the news all about media and ratings and selling ad space instead of actually about giving the news. Very vapid and shallow with his newscasts, and he's deciding over the course of the show to sort of change that and become a real news show again and be honest and really report on the news. Ah, interesting. Wow. But I've been, I've been, I've been empathizing with it. We're really talking about design. We're not just, uh, we're not just dribbling over here. <laughs> that, oh, that is a. We're turning that into a mean verb. Yeah, so I'm, I'm loving that. Uh, it's beautiful here in Baltimore. The, the heat finally broke, and it's been just gorgeous outside, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, I ordered a new bike too. I bought a bike on eBay, uh, which I'm very excited about. But the USPS refuses to deliver it to me, which is very interesting. Wow, I mean that's a, that is some serious shipping a whole bike. Yeah, so I mean I, I mean yeah, but they just ship like they ship something like that all the time. It's not that ridiculous. So this this guy lives in Providence. He packed up on Friday, and he like sent it out. And he was a great great eBay seller. He like took pictures of the box with my address written on it to make sure I could verify it was all right. He showed me how he packed it. It was amazing. So he submitted it to like he like dropped it off at the USPS on Friday and gave me the tracking number. Tracking number said you know dropped off at you know Providence Rhode Island location on Friday, and it was supposed to be delivered by last Thursday. And the tracking information didn't update at all until Friday morning. So the date that was supposed to be delivered came and passed, no bike. And then Friday morning, it said that it had arrived in D.C., which is south of Baltimore, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite direction of Providence, Rhode Island, for those of you that aren't good with maps, uh, which was a little bit curious. And then it was like it updated again a day later and said that it left D.C. at question mark, question mark, question mark. Didn't know when it left. Uh, And then yesterday, the mailman came. With just the, the slip saying we had missed the package, but he didn't have it with him. He just gave me the slip and said I had to go <laughs> pick up the package at the post office. I was like, are you going to deliver it? He's like, no. And this happened to my roommate, too, with a towel he got from Turkey. They're just, our post office in Baltimore has, has started refusing to deliver certain packages. You have to go pick it up at the post office yourself. The USPS is doomed. It's so doomed. It's still, I actually, I, I still think it's a pretty good deal. You can, you can pay, like, 40-something cents and you can send a letter from D.C. to California. I, I think it's okay. Oh, I mean, I'm still constantly, I'm impressed at any physical infrastructure. Having only worked in digital infrastructures, anything physical always amazes me. But yeah. the fact that there's not going to, like, it's a mile away. I have to, like, walk down there and, like, carry my bike back or either or bring a wrench and put it together in the post office. I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, you should have done that. I might end up doing that. I might bring tools, build it in the post office, and then ride it away and leave the box there. I'm not positive. 
Alright, we got a lot to talk about this week. I didn't mean to distract you with my whining about my bike not arriving. Let's jump right into the top of the dock. Alright, let's. I, I know you want to talk about this article, Toxic Nostalgia, so <sighs> why don't, so, you, why so don't you just start talking about it right now? Yeah, so, article um, from Print Mag uh, called Toxic Nostalgia. This article, to me, is sort of... I want to use it to kickstart like, a big conversation about skeuomorphism. I know we've talked about it on the show before, uh, sort of in passing. But um, So this article was, you know, made the rounds last week. Uh, it was basically talking about how the, the author's hypothesis is that nostalgia and skeuomorphism and all of these emulations of physical things in digital interfaces and also in physical products has uh, really become toxic to the design process. Honestly, I didn't feel like it was that good of an article, to be, to be completely honest. I felt like it was basically just listing a bunch of ridiculous things that were skeuomorphic and you know, nostalgic and saying they didn't like them. Um, in, the, in the scope of writing that has been done about nostalgia and design, I think this is not the best article. But some of the examples it gives are interesting. Top of your head, what do you guys think about the piece? Actually, I actually kind of agree with you that I didn't think it was like the most intriguing in the way it was written, but just the bullet point list of things that it creates as examples, I was really interested in. Because it does do a really good job of kind of summing up you know, the big points of skeuomorphism or using nostalgia for design and giving really uh, clear examples as to different ways designers have done that. And obviously everybody goes for Apple, but I actually was really interested in the Obama campaign one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They they mentioned the Obama campaign, obviously the original one that used um, change set in Gotham, very contemporary, uh, didn't really look back at all. In fact, it looked to the future. And now they're kind of using this, you know, revolutionary inspired typeface uh, for America. It actually looks like old Cuban revolutionary posters yeah mm-hmm. um and the tagline is betting on americans very whimsical script typeface and what was interesting about it is that it's looking towards the past almost as if we don't trust the future anymore we don't think anything good could happen now so we better look back towards the 1950s yeah i wonder if there's that much thought behind it because in some ways the obama branding from four years ago i was i mean definitely it was beautiful and the best political branding that has you know been around since but I think that it also sort of fit into the the trends and the style of the time. Just that it was clean and modern, had you know Gotham in all caps. Like it was kind of what everyone was doing. And now it seems like you know what they're doing with the campaign these days is also sort of what everyone's doing. They're playing off of this nostalgia, which is huge right now. So I wonder if they're thinking about it as much as you and I are right now about whether it's looking to the past or the I, future. I don't know. I, I I'm I'm going to disagree with you. I in a in a previous show I did called Read Between the Letting, I interviewed a guy named uh, everybody knows him as Simple Scott. Um, and he worked on the original Obama campaign. And talking to him about just, just the to- choice in typography, they made some very clear choices um, in very specifically using Gotham and not like Gil Sands, which they were previously going from a British typeface to mm-hmm. an American typeface. Yeah. And also you have to remember that Gotham at that time was not even close to as popular as it is today. And it probably was that campaign being the reason for so many people switching to Gotham. Like, that became the American typeface, and it, and it, it created all these meanings that were not previously attached to it. Previously, it was considered this very neutral thing. I think people still try to use it in that way, but to me now, it very clearly speaks to a certain time in America based on that campaign. Yeah, I think the campaign does play a huge role in the history of the typeface. You're definitely right about that. Uh, it's funny because, you know... Four years ago, when that campaign happened, it's funny. I was really just getting into design, like for the first time ever. Like I was, I couldn't, I can't say six years ago I was aware of what typefaces were in the zeitgeist and what was trendy and what was what everyone was using. So it's almost I'm almost too young to actually make a comment on it, <laughs> right. which, is, which is a bit terrifying and humbling. 
Yeah, there was just Ariel before that. That, that was about it. Which is terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. Oh, no, there was Helvetica. Because it was the documentary. Yep. Yeah. Dan, what are you talking about? I have no idea. I think Dan is naming fonts in the room that he sees. A <laughs> uh, lamp. Uh, time to do Roman. Uh, backpack. Awesome. I've turned into Brick Tamlin, everybody. So one of the other things that they they cited early on in the article was this sort of new beer can. Um, I say new in, in air quotes, of course. Uh, this church key company is making beer now that comes in a, a totally sealed can. You need an actual can opener to open, um, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a throwback to before we invented the fancy tab cans with the perforated lids that are much easier. Uh, and I, I definitely hear what the author is saying about that being ridiculous and sort of a step backwards, but I also think that the experience of buying and imbibing a beverage uh, is something that has weight. I think it's really important. So I always I look at the same as like twist off tops are more convenient than uh, you know pop tops. So you think about wine and a cork is much less convenient than just having a regular screw off metal cap on it. But having a cork and having a regular top on a beer you have to open up with a, with a bottle opener makes it feel better. It feels more legitimate. What, what do you guys think about that? Actually, I do see. Um, I, I've never bought this beer and I've never used a can opener to open a beer. But there is something to be said about the pop top versus the screw off top in that I perceive a beer w- with a screw off top as being a lower quality beer. Mm-hmm. Now, the truth is that is that is total bullshit mm-hmm. and it's just making it easier for me to open my beer. But because companies – was it Einhauser, Bush, InBev, whatever their combination is now, and Miller no Coors um, put out beers like Miller and Corona and – Coors and Budweiser and whatever, all those have the screw top and the smaller brew companies have stuck with the kind of older model of the uh, pop top. Mm-hmm. I end up seeing that as a craft brew sign and that means this beer is a higher quality. So there are these signals that are very clear to consumers even though they may not be based in any sort of reality. So there is an important piece of design in understanding what these these cues mean even if they're not the most functional thing. I, I see that as very valuable. I don't know. There's kind of a division for me though. Like there's the using having to use a um, can opener to you know pop open a beer. That's one thing. But I think there's a completely different level that they actually like all the graphics and and the entire identity of the whole thing is also throwback. So I don't know. Uh, I feel like that is where they're just trying to combine those two things together instead of having like the experience of having to like literally open up the can as opposed to open up the can. And it's also a can that looks like it was from 50 years ago. Well, it, it, it kind of matches in style, the whole tone they're going for. It, it speaks the same voice across the experience and the actual visuals. I don't know. So I, I don't, I should say, I don't drink beer. I'm again, I don't gamble. I'm not, I'm not the fun person, but <laughs> so, so I, I can't speak to the quality of beer based on how you open the bottle or whatnot. But, but I do know that like, I, I assume that, a beer that comes in a glass bottle, it's actually the beer that comes in a can. And if the glass bottle is pushed off top, it's probably not as good as the pop-off top. But, you know, regular pop-tops you need a bottle opener for are pretty common, whereas this beer where you need an actual separate can opener, which I understand that the, the six-pack of beer comes with the can opener, the, the church key, because nobody has them anymore, so you have to package right. it with it. Wow. Which yeah. is funny in and of itself. And this is not at all common, and I wonder if it's going to be just perceived as, like, hipster and ironic as opposed to actually attention to the experience of drinking a beer actually yeah i think the difference between what i was saying and, and what this is is this is really reeling back the clock and going to something back to something that people don't even use at all anymore as opposed to the the pop top which we're all pretty used to and everybody has 
everybody has some sort of beer opener at home, I would imagine. Even people who don't drink beer probably have a uh, some way to open a bottle. It's true. I do have bottle opener. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this I do actually think this is kind of ridiculous, and it will be seen as a, a hipster beer, or whatever you want to call it. But there's no real good reason to do this besides kind of trying to create this vintage experience. Yeah. And in that sense, I do see it as kind of ridiculous. So a couple questions. Why do you think that the bottle opener necessary pop top has survived, whereas this has not did not survive? Like, why didn't Twist Off replace everything when it comes to beer? Is there a technical reason? Well, I bet I bet the big technical reason is um, people didn't see it as so much more convenient that they needed to change all their equipment to, you know, change the manufacturing line to to start screwing on tops than the previous way of of. Uh, capping a bottle it works just fine so why change it like it's not worth the big cost of an upgrade that that's my guess i mean i don't own a beer factory but one would imagine Mm -hmm. um this is obviously they had to change all the equipment and reinstate this old manufacturing process so that's a big difference and i think conscious step backwards yeah yeah and i think the um the kind of tradition you know the standard can you get now with the the pop top whatever you call that um that is so convenient that everybody switched to it a long time ago and never looked back. So my other question is, and I know you said it's a bit ridiculous, and I agree, it is kind of silly, but do you think that there is legitimacy in the experience of opening the beer? So, so my thing is, I don't care that this is the way you used to open a beer 50 years ago. That doesn't matter to me at all. I wasn't alive. It has no nostalgic, you know, doesn't pull any, strike any chords in me. Having a specific ritual associated with opening this beer is really powerful to me. Like, I don't care if it's, you know, a, a bottle opener from the 50s or if it's, you know, a fork you have to jam in the side of it and then twist <laughs> in a certain way so this weird, like, spout is formed. Like, whatever it is, I really appreciate that the, the brand, that this church key brand, took, uh, considered the experience of opening and drinking the beer more so than just whatever was most convenient. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I yeah. understand that. I think it would be valuable if there were more people who were used to this ritual, but I'm not sure that they're, the market they're going for is going to gonna have any relation to that. The same way you were saying, you're too young, it doesn't mean anything to you, so why is it important? I think there will probably be people who do it who will want, who want to participate in this ironically, but I don't think it has any real meaning. And I, I feel like the generation of people that would remember this, at least from my experience, does not give a crap about that kind of nostalgia. My dad wouldn't care at all about opening a beer the way he used to when he was, you know, eighteen or whatever. I don't. There's also like the other market though, like the the like the craft sort of guys, like. Um... It was one time I was actually hanging out with a brewer, like a guy who actually brewed beer uh, in a brewery. And, um, you know, he was showing us all these different types of fancy beers that had like corks and that sort of thing. And seeing those, I was like, this is a level of fancy I've never seen before. And I wonder if this is the sort of thing that they would just want to do it just because it's kind of like a different way of doing something that they're literally surrounded in all day every day yeah no i think the the experience is really important like the way you open the beer is important the same way that i think that like a record as opposed to a cd or an mp3 was a much more you know emotional form of music because it involved taking this record out and you had to put it on the the record player and drop the needle on it physically then you're left with this massive piece of cardboard that had graphics on it i think that the experience of little things and small alterations can really affect people's emotional response to a product 
So in that sense, I, I don't think the church key is as ridiculous. The 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 point I want to go back to about I mentioned this with Obama, and the article mentioned this. But the thing I think is the most interesting about all of these things is that I think the reason that we are finding these vintage, these kitschy, old-timey approaches to things is interesting is I think everybody's kind of afraid of the future. I think that oh, that kind of Jetsons idea of the future where everything's exciting and cars are going to fly and we're going to have jetpacks. Oh my God, I think jet now after, after the, the recession and everybody losing their jobs – everybody's not really so thrilled about what's coming next. So people, obviously advertisers are going to try to sell you on the idea that the past was so great. So let's just start building our world like the past. And, and, and that's I, reverberating around every single, I mean, like the fact that we're not, you know, sending things to space anymore. The, like NASA doesn't really exist. It's basically Elon Musk is sending things to space. That is affecting that. You look at car companies, nobody makes new cars anymore. They just take old cars that were popular and try and, breathe new life mm-hmm. into the designs and resell them as something else. All movies are remakes more, more so than ever. I feel like there are more remakes now than there have ever been at any point in the history of cinema. Then it's just People seem to be afraid to do something new when it's so easy to sell something that's already successful. Even in movies, it's not... You don't even have to remake a movie. You can turn anything that is as a name someone remembers into a movie. Battleship came out recently. That's ridiculous. And I, I'm assuming that the plot of Battleship <laughs> isn't based on a grid. I'm assuming it's uh, it's a completely different idea. It just happens to have the name Battleship that they license because people remember it and they'll recognize it. You know, I, I haven't seen the movie. I actually want to just because I think it's going to be ridiculously terrible. Uh, but I think the grid does play some sort of role. And if there's not a line in the movie that's, you suck my battleship dramatically, <laughs> it is such a huge missed opportunity. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? I'm sure it is going to be there, but it's going to feel so forced in. It'll be like shoehorned in at some point. So we're getting really close to talking about sort of like the Ebbets Field thing, which is also mentioned in this article. Um, yeah. You know, the, the new city field uh, in New York is modeled very similarly to Ebbets Field. Uh, they're, they're taking a lot of design cues from that building into the new building, um, which is in this exact same vein. It's basically like a remake of the building. Instead of doing something new and architecturally interesting, they're just going to play on that nostalgia that people have with the old field. Um, and in my mind, actually kind of dilute that sort of importance like if every time you remake something i think you lose a little bit of that authentic empathy people had with it in its original form i i can understand the the reason to do that in in something like a baseball field because so much of baseball is kind of about like the soul and the history of the sport and creating a new stadium is like kind of anti-baseball i maybe i'm i'm exaggerating but it at does some point, seem every like... stadium was new, though. I mean, the Big Green Monster was new at some point. Oh, yeah, point. totally. And Camden Yards was new at some point, and now that's, you know, what the history is built on. It, why, is it, why can't we make new things that are just as significant? That, that was kind of where I was just about to go, is that I think we just get so afraid of losing the soul of something is that we think we need to create something that has that previous soul rather than trying to build a new soul around a place. And I, I, I it, it does bug me. I don't... Even going, like, I did recently go to the new Yankee Stadium, and it does feel a little soulless. Uh, but I wonder if that's just because this is a new place, it needs to accumulate that. You can't just build it in from day one. And maybe that's the failing of the city field, is that that you try to build it in from day one, and it's not there. Exactly. It's it's uh, You're phoning it in. It's not real authenticity. Yeah, it, it's, I, I think it's a shame to not try and build new things that 
can become the next traditions as opposed to focusing on the old traditions. And I, I do think it really does dilute it and it makes it you know less meaningful. I, I keep thinking about Arrested Development. <laughs> it's like, I loved Arrested Development. We've talked about it on the show before and it had a relatively short run and it was concise and complete and sort of, you know, I, I, in my mind it was done. It was like a thing. And people, yeah. it got canceled, you know, because people that had controlled the money didn't feel as though it was you know, doing what, is, what it should be doing, and fans sort of lobbied for years and years and years and finally convinced them to bring it back in some form. And now Netflix is actually bankrolling, uh, I believe, a new series and also a movie, correct, about... Oh, yeah. I yep. I, so, actually, I don't know if the movie's going to happen, but I know the new series is going to happen. So, yeah, whatever it is, it's like, okay, we have all these talented people that made a really great thing, and it was a great thing. I'd rather take those same talented people and give them the free you know, the free time and money to make a new great thing as opposed to making the same thing again, which I feel inevitably is going to fall flat on its face. You know what? I was having this conversation yesterday even about that specifically. We were, like, browsing through Netflix. We saw the old Arrested Development and thought, you know, the new one's going to be really disappointing because we've been building it up for so long that mm-hmm. nothing is going to be as good as we want it to be in our minds. It's like it's like telling someone telling someone you have this great joke to tell and then waiting a year to tell it. You know what? You're not going to be all that excited about the punchline. Um, but I I do like things that have an existence and then they are over. the The British Office is this is one of the reasons I think the British Office is so much better than the American Office. Which I don't I don't mean to sound like every other person on the planet by saying that, but the, it had a life. It had I think I believe two seasons, or they call it, I guess they call it series in England. And then they just let it end. That was perfect. By dragging it on and on and on, you only dilute the memories of what was great about the thing originally. Or even or dilute the thing itself. I don't mean to say the only things you enjoy are the memories of it. The thing could actually have been great. Yeah. I always think about Calvin and Hobbes, too. I, I think that Bill Waterston had, was so courageous to end Calvin and Hobbes when he did, which was right at the peak of his success. Yeah, you know, he spent years and years and years, you know, denying every single T-shirt licensing offer and merchandising he could have made a bunch of money off of uh, to protect the integrity of the thing he made, and then he walked away from it. You know, walked away from syndication in thousands of newspapers and all that money because he felt like it was had to run its course. Which you look at something like the Peanuts, which has been around for like sixty years, and there's you know, it's Arbor Day. Charlie Brown is a real thing. I wonder if it's even if it's even bigger than that, and it's related to somehow related to a fear of death or fear of our own mortality. Is that if you can just keep these things oh, going shit. on and on and on and on, and if we can just and we're doing this with our own lifespans too. We're trying oh, any shit, possible so way, any possible way to expand our own lives. We'll just keep going on and on and on and on, and we'll have these two hundred, three hundred year old people who just keep spitting out the same movies over and over and over and over again. We'll have another Spider Man. We'll have another Superman. We'll have another Batman. George Lucas we'll is just, a robot. Why don't we just keep running in circles? <laughs> oh God, does that mean dubstep is going to last forever? Actually, you know, as much as uh, people give dubstep shit, it is at least a new thing. I'll give them credit for that. Yeah, uh, whoever yeah. the guy is who came up with dubstep. <laughs> Absolutely, I give them mad props for for making a new thing. M- music does seem to be one of the ones, one of the areas of creativity that relies the least on nostalgia, uh, for what it's worth. Is Which, that true, though? I don't know. Mm-hmm, There's so no. many... I don't think that's true at all. Okay. There are so many bands that just try to do what the Beatles did over and over and over and over again. Who tries to do that? And then there's a rare, rare moment that a thing like dubstep is created. Yeah. I don't mean to elevate dubstep to this level. Yeah, seriously. I don't like we, it. we just put <laughs> dubstep above the <laughs> fucking Beatles. Thank God for it's Skrillex. It's new, though. It's, it's, I appreciate somebody <laughs> trying to do something new. 
Wait, so, so what's the example of some of the music that's been sort of rehashing old themes and, and sort of playing on nostalgia? Lady Gaga is just Madonna. Yep, Panic at the Disco. That last album was clearly the Beatles, at least their second album. We've just found out Dan listens to Panic at the Disco. Shut wow. up. It's not <laughs> well, that bad. See, I, like Lady Gaga is Madonna. I agree. I, I definitely <laughs> see that. And isn't every like teen idol just uh, wow, what's what is the teen idol I'm trying to think of from the '80s? Anyway, teen idols have continued continue to exist. I'm sure boy bands will come back because there was back. Oh, they're already music, back. The, new kids the One on the Direction, the One Direction, yeah, Matt. They're already right. back. So, I think your your claim that music is the one place that does not fall victim to that is totally false. This no, happens but, but all the time. To me, I think I think it's a difference. I think it's a really important difference. I think all these examples we're citing in music are better examples of the everything has already been done trope than the playing on nostalgia trope like do you, do you think the same people that are listening to lady gaga are the same people that were really big fans of madonna or you think it's a totally new generation of people it's the thing is a totally new generation of people and they actually don't know they're just uh they're just having a thing parroted back to them but i think it's exactly the same as like when apple introduces the leather bound book interface on the iCal like i never had a ink blotter or what you know whatever they're trying to mimic i never had one of those on my desk i'm too young um, so that makes no – there's no reference that I'm going to get there. I mean I, I mean I can look it up and understand what they're trying to reference. Yeah. So I, I get it yeah. at some point. But it's, I think it's the same thing. Apple's the one different case too. I've written about this before in the past. I, I think that Apple is one of the few companies that is doing new things, like really new things uh, out there. And so for me, like the skeuomorphism is like their crutch to keep them sort of anchored to the common person, like the, the mass – the mass audience that could buy Apple products. Right. This is, yeah, I guess the difference is that this is their way of saying the future is not scary. Exactly. The the Lady Gaga Madonna thing is just just saying like, oh, these kids are so young. They totally forgot about this other thing. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Just do it again. (laughs) I guess that's, I guess. We can make money. Let's do it again. You could really just pare everything down to like 20 year cycles or something. Just wait 20 years. Everybody, everybody who listened to that previous thing doesn't care anymore or uh, has moved on. And now there's a new group of people and let's just, do it again. They don't remember. But is that the same thing we're seeing with, like, iCal? I don't no, think it's the same you're right. thing. you're right. It's yeah, not yeah. the same thing. It's, it's different approaches, but it's, um, I, I don't know, similar end results? Because it, it, you could potentially say it has, it has different life It has a similar life cycle in that you're referring to this thing that's 20, you know, 20 to 50 years old. And that might keep happening. Who knows? Maybe there's going to be a program in the future that relates back to the skeuomorphism used it's just going to be so far removed from the original product, but mm. it could still happen. You know, there is this one artist, um, the, the tallest man on earth. And if you listen to a lot of his recordings, they actually sound like the, a little bit messed up. Like if you had kind of like an aged cassette deck, like if you're listening to it, like how it kind of like skips over to only one side and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. He yeah. actually fixated that into the recording for that bit yeah. of nostalgia. Yeah. That was, you know, t- actually, I mean, that's what Jack White's career is too, right? Is referring to these old blues acts and then just trying to repeat what they did. Mm-hmm. And he does it very well, but I think he even he would say that. I think he's, also, he's, he's innovating in some ways too, though. I don't think it's fair to say that Jack White is the iCal of music. <laughs> I, I, you're, definitely, you're, you're definitely right, Dan. There are many artists that play on the sort of lo-fi nostalgia. That's true. Like, you know, Mountain Goats and Neutral Milk Hotel all very much play up the, the lo-fi recording, which I, which I do think it's a very, that's a much clearer example to me of nostalgia uh, in music than the other examples we gave of like Lady Gaga being Madonna. So, so okay, so moving, moving forward with this, I do like the call to action of 
stop referring to the past. And what's interesting to me in this category is that Microsoft seems to be doing it better than anyone. I know mm-hmm. we learned this week that we can't call it Metro anymore. What do we have to call it? Windows UI 8 style or something? Design uh, style. did a bad job. But the point is they actually – their mantras in – I'm just going to keep calling it Metro until they come up with a better name. <laughs> but their mantras for Metro are digital things are digital and let's acknowledge that. I can very much appreciate that. And I don't know that there are a lot of people who are saying so explicitly that that's, that's how they want to treat their – future-facing product. Yeah, and I, I can definitely appreciate that concept, but that, that brings me to one of my biggest hang-ups with all of this stuff. Like, I, I don't like the fake leather blotter iCal, and I don't like the fact that the icons on my iOS screen are all glossy, like as if they're little candy buttons. I don't like any of that stuff. But Apple definitely made a choice to make the future seem less scary by putting these really familiar textures and familiar elements and sort of hokey, kitschy nostalgic elements into the interface and has that been a big reason why they've been successful i don't know that i can can you can you say that their success is from that i don't know oh, no, none of us know we can speculate right hmm. it's i guess it's I guess it's interesting to me because i feel like their their success is based on the other parts of like their their beautiful clean simple hardware and, yeah. and their packaging and their marketing and then the the look of the the interface stuff like that's once you've already bought the product, you're already there, you're, you, you've made a pretty significant investment in their technology. Mm-hmm. I think, they're, I think the, the, the things I look to that they're doing so great are actually the kind of like modernist approaches where they let the device be the device. They don't add a ton of decoration to it. I mean, I guess an iPhone's going to change minimally just to signal that it's different, but it is like kind of as small as it can possibly be, and that's what they're trying to do with their laptops, and that's what they're... That's, I mean, that's what the Apple TV is. It's a tiny little black box. To me, that's the success of it. But I can't measure what these nostalgic elements are doing for them. Yeah. Maybe people are using iCal for that, but I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are switching from iCal for that reason too. Yeah, and I'd like to thank Johnny Ive. I want to give him all the credit because I, I do think that the hardware is where Apple is really, truly innovating. Um, and also, obviously, the, infrastructure, the App Store was a huge innovation, like the infrastructural stuff as well. And... I, I definitely don't think I respond to the sort of nostalgia. I don't think that it makes the interface any more easy for me to understand. I don't think it makes me any more likely to invest the time to get it. But I do think my mom, for example, I, I think that if she opens up her iPad and things, I mean, more or less trick her into thinking that it's something familiar, even though it's not, and she does, in fact, have to learn a new way to use it no matter what, but I think she's more willing to invest the time if she thinks she's going to get it immediately. And I think mm-hmm. that having this sort of nostalgia may very well make her think she's going to get it. And I don't mean yeah. to put my mother on the on the. My mom, my mom listens to the podcast, so she's going to hear this at some point. <laughs> oh, um, hi, mom. Hi, Mrs. Mangold. Uh, so I think there's something to be said for convincing people that they are going to be able to get it by almost tricking them into thinking that this is something that's familiar to them, even though it's not. And I I, I constantly wrestle with whether or not that's been a huge part of Apple's success. I think it's definitely a, a, a part of the recipe. Um, I like to think it's not too much of the recipe because I don't want to embrace that in my own work. I actually think that it does help them out a lot uh, because there's a ton of people that when they go onto like a Windows machine or, or whatever, because there's such a lack of clarity on like what you know this button does as opposed to that one. I think how Apple has succeeded is that they use the skeuomorphic sort of aspects and then use that to establish hierarchy. So, like, there's things like, oh, this big bar that's, like, a leather-bound thing. Like, that's the menu because, like, that's above everything. And then each of these are just a page. 
So it's actually like a better connection than just having different levels of an interface that are like maybe slightly different shades of gray. But what I don't know. What if what if your interface were maybe maybe that's just the failings of a previous Windows interface. What if mm. your interface were I guess I'm I'm maybe talking about kind of where they started with the Zune, um, where Microsoft started with the Zune uh, Metro interface. So that was kind of the beginnings of it. I know nobody really owned a Zune, so. We can already say that maybe that was a failure. But what if you just called what you're doing instead of calling it iTunes and having uh, a, a shiny, fancy music note or the previous icon with it, it was a CD? What if you just call it music? Is that really so hard to understand? And is there is it in some ways clearer? That's, I mean, they, they started doing that with Mountain Lion. Like, you know, iCal is no, no longer iCal. It's calendar. So I, right. I think they're actually moving towards that. I think they're just trying to be gentle about it. Even the idea of a calendar, I mean, a calendar is a physical thing. I, I, the question is, how far do you push this? Because you could say that scheduling your events, you know, based on date and time on a computer isn't a calendar. It's like a new thing where you can maybe have this crazy array that makes it in a smarter way. But people don't understand that. People understand a calendar, obviously. So even though it's not a physical calendar, it's on, on your computer. It's actually just, you know, a big grid of information we're going to call it that because people are going to understand that. Actually, that's true. It's that the difference between calendar and music is music is a is is not a physical thing. Yeah, exactly. Music is is just describing the 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 combination of of sound and rhythm or what whatever the dictionary definition is. Whereas calendar is a physical thing. And if you called it like list based view sorted by date, that's very hard for somebody <laughs> yeah. to understand what we're talking about. So that's valuable. That's yeah. obviously valuable. And I don't mean to say that it is not. But it's also like there is like maybe someone could come up with a way to organize your events that's fifteen times better. It's way more efficient. It's way more intuitive once you give it the chance. But it's not calendar shaped. I don't know what it looks like, but I think it's possible someone could do that. And right. the idea of trying to get people to use that new thing when they're used to the old thing, I think you would have to pull over elements of a calendar and stick them on there for people to understand what was going on. Back to your point about the hardware, Matt. I think that Apple's hardware is the best example of their extreme attention to design and like they make the most beautiful hardware available by far but unfortunately i think that only appeals to a very small chunk of the population i think there are very few people that are going to buy the nicest best thing when it comes to anything you look at all people that shop at walmart for stuff for their kitchen and you know people just buy whatever is convenient and cheap is what it comes down to it on the on the on the whole so i think Mm -hmm. that the reason that Apple has seen success in the general population is not because of its beautiful hardware, which is, it's always been more beautiful than PC hardware. It's definitely gotten better over the years, but it's always been better than the PC equivalent. And instead, I think it's unfortunately due to this sort of really kitschy, nostalgic thing they're playing off of, which is really struck a chord. I mean, the reason this trend exists is because people are responding to it. If people didn't like it, it wouldn't be a thing. Speaking of changing and that sort of thing, do you guys want to move on to uh, the Patton Oswalt's keynote address? I actually was I, – I felt like there was a really clear segue in uh, – Andy was talking about the innovation of the App Store, which is mm-hmm. a very different innovation than the hardware. Um, and that – I think the App Store leads very clearly into this Patton Oswalt letter, which I'll give a little bit of background to. Um, this was at – this was kind of his keynote address at the Just for Laughs uh, Montreal Comedy Festival – and uh, I know we're talking about comedy and not design, but I think once we get through it, you'll see the very clear links and, and why we're relating to it so much. Um, 
But I, I rather than reading the whole letter, letter I'll, I'll kind of give the broad strokes. He broke it down into two different letters. One was aimed at comedians, and one was aimed at the kind of gatekeepers of content. In the comedian's letter, he mentioned that everything has changed in his life kind of three times. There was the first part of his life where to be a famous comedian, he had to get on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And that meant you come up with a, a short five minutes, um, very tight. You go on the show. You're seen by everybody because there's one show that you watch. It's not whacked up so thin. And you get famous. And from there, you're a successful comedian. Then, obviously, Johnny Carson is no longer in the air. That happened a while ago. And that ended. Comedians had to change the way it was because now there are multiple shows. There are multiple late shows. There's no one definitive show. And everyone's watching the internet instead. Right. Yeah. And, well, this is even before that. This is, uh, yeah. this is, this is pre-internet, pre-YouTube. I mean, maybe, maybe like the beginnings of the internet, but it was not popular. Then there's the part where comedians uh, get lucky. They get cast in stuff. They get given stuff. They get put in shows. Uh, you know, pe- people get their own sitcom and they become very successful. That was the second way, but it was still something being given to them. Mm-hmm. The third way is now he said it, he didn't he didn't give an exact date because it's kind of been changing. It's never it never nobody flipped a light switch. But now you kind of have to create your own thing. He refers to how he started comedians at comedy, even though he had other things. He was in King of Queens, and that was a really popular show. And I'm sure that's in syndication now and doing just fine. But Patton Oswalt didn't become who he was until he created Comedians of Comedy and kind of connected with this fan base of people who love comedy. And that's where I think the future lies. You're not going to be given anything anymore. You have to go out and get it. And that was a letter to comedians. But I think if you can't relate to that, um, I, 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 don't, I don't know what world you're living in. That, that's clearly where we're going. I mean, people... This, I mean, this is, I think, maybe a problem, too, with our with our job market is that uh, we have this model of you go work at a factory for 50 years, you're given that job, and that's all you have to that's all you have to rely on. Whereas I think now you get jobs every couple of years, you have to keep going, you have to push yourself a little bit harder or not, not, not that you wouldn't, weren't pushing yourself harder previously, but I mean, like, if you're going to promote yourself harder, right? Yeah. The greatest generation, more like the laziest generation. Yeah, right. They I don't, I don't mean to be a... for their entire lives. <laughs> what a bunch of bums. They're just in coal mines. Jeez, so easy. Um, but no, you have to, you, you kind of have to promote yourself a little bit more than you did previously. And then the second letter was to the gatekeepers, the kind of people he, he talks to, Cable executives, focus groups, record labels, but I'm, you know, I think we can we can all make the connection as to what we mean by gatekeepers. And he, he talks about being in a post Louis world, referring to Louis C.K.'s FX television show, where he basically does everything himself. He edits the show. All he really gets is a check, which is which is for way way less than a lot of television shows were pr- produced for previously. But the caveat is that he doesn't get any notes, and he does what he wants. And I think that's the the great part about that is that people get to do get to create the vision that they had, and I'm sure the scary part is for the gatekeepers who don't really have any say in between, and and why are they relevant anymore? What I thought was interesting about this is that obviously this is so relatable to the to the way designers and developers are working now, but also I wondered if maybe the gatekeepers are just changing; they're not being taken away because we talked about the app store. And we can talk about Amazon, and I'm sure we can talk about Google and all the people who are trying to become the new gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. 
but also there's there's Louis C.K. and like putting his his uh, stand-up special on the web for five dollars and cutting out any sort of middleman. It's very exciting, but I, I kind of wonder where this is going, and I, I I'm very interested to hear what you guys thought of these two letters. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of uh, like Trent Reznor because he's been a, a big proponent of just doing everything yourself for a long time now. You know, with Nine Inch Nails and even with his own stuff. So I I think the thing that really interests me the most is that you see examples of this and we're all extremely appreciative of appreciative of it but you don't see it that often so i i think there's just this thing where the gatekeeper still exists because there's still a big fear of failing by yourself yeah i i think you're you're right about that it, it in a sense the gatekeepers are changing matt but they're changing in a very good way i think i think it used to be that in order to get something out there you had to you know, in a lot of ways, get lucky, like Patton mentioned. You know, if you wanted to get your book published by a big publisher, you had to get it in front of the right people, you had to have the right connections, and then they had to like it. And that was the only way you'd ever have a chance of being an author. Um, the same went for being a musician, the same went for being uh, a filmmaker, and, and everything. And, and now we have the tools to make these things much more readily available. I love the part in Patton's letter where he holds up his iPhone and says that he has in his hand more cinemagraphic technology than Orson Welles had when he made Citizen Kane. Right. Which is totally true and super humbling to realize that that is, in fact, the world we live in and mm-hmm. makes you appreciate things like Citizen Kane. So the tools are readily available, not just for creating this content, but for, for publishing it. Um, you know, the Internet is the most basic infrastructure of the digital age that we have. And Louis, even, you know, even though Louis C.K. is you know, doing it on his own, he's doing it on his own with the gatekeeper of the Internet and the gatekeeper of having to be able to pay somebody to put up a website or have to, having to have those skills themselves. So it's not like it's... It's still not easy, and it's never going to be easy, mm-hmm. but it's getting easier. And the sense that it's even a possibility now for you know Louis to hire somebody to make him a website that has e-commerce built into it, so he can sell tickets to his show himself, and he can sell his DVD special himself. Um, it's great, and it takes the foresight of someone like Louis C.K. to see that that's a potential. I think I think Dan is right that I think most people would be too scared to invest the the time and money up front to take that risk. Right. And I guess the the, uh, the the conversation about the shift in gatekeepers, the thing that's probably the most interesting is that for the most part, as we shift, the gatekeepers will still control some of the money. That's always going to be true, or else why why would you build the infrastructure? Mm-hmm. But I don't think they're going to have play nearly as, as much a role in the content. No, yeah, exactly. That's the huge deal. Um, putting a show on NBC versus putting a show on iTunes, Amazon, or setting up your, you know, paying the person to set up your own site and then using PayPal. PayPal is going to take some some of the cut, but they are going to have nothing to say about what you want to sell. PayPal is not going to give you notes. Right. And that's a huge difference. And I guess we're not quite there with like app development and designing digital products because the app store does have guidelines as to what you can and can't publish. Yeah. But obviously it's not nearly as restrictive as if you were writing a movie or a, a, a television screenplay or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a big difference too is that if you go to NBC with the a show, there's this whole thing about the pitch and you actually have to convince people to let this thing run where with the app store, you're like, okay, I'm going to submit this. I've already made it. It's already like a vision and everything. It's just to make sure that it's not, you know, like offensive to anybody or anything like that. So I think that is the big difference that you don't have to pitch your app to the app store. I think well, still, the pitch is still very much a part of it. You got to. Oh yeah, I was going to say, where do you get your money from? 
Well, it's not just that, but you got to pitch your app in the sense that... So let's assume you're not taking funding. We'll get to funding in a second. If you're putting an app in the App Store, it's not as simple as, I made it, it's out there now. You have to consider you know, how you write the app description, how you put the screenshots in there to make people understand what it is, how you market it, because unless you get you know, lucky enough for Apple to handpick you and put you in the featured section, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of legwork to get anybody to see your app. I mean, there's, like I think, 600, 700 apps that are added to the App Store every single day. If you want to be one of them that actually rises to the top and gets noticed, it, it, it's, it's, you, you still have to make that pitch. It's just not to the, the person. It's not to one person. It's instead to the entire world. Yeah, it's like the it, the room's just gotten a lot bigger. Yeah, that's yeah. the big difference is that um, where, you know, if you went to NBC and you did the pitch to them and then they went along with it, they also do the whole other level of the marketing and everything like that where, you know, with the App Store, you're kind of just on your own. I think that is the big difference. I guess so, that's where the fear comes in is because if you can convince NBC that your show is worthwhile, while it may be very difficult, you have to convince a couple of people and then they'll promote, well, hopefully, they'll promote the show that you're putting on the air. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, even in the NBC situation, you're still kind of pitching to everybody because NBC is basing all of their feedback off of ratings and numbers and polling and focus groups which is, you know, everybody at large. Whoever has a Nielsen box. Yeah, yeah which, which is a whole other issue of, you know, <laughs> screwed up statistics. But it's interesting to me that, like, so you're pitching to everybody with an app. If you make an app or you make a, a video sitcom and put it on YouTube, you know, you're trying to get anybody to watch it. You're just sticking it out there in the world and it's available to everybody, you know, equally. But because the infrastructure is so large, you can have things that have very niche appeal still exist to be completely successful. Which is right. what I think the huge advantage of this like more segmented gatekeeper model is. Like, yes, you still have to get a video camera, you still have to upload to YouTube, you still have to do all that sort of stuff, which is nothing compared to what you had to do back in the day with NBC. But now you can have a thing that eighty percent of people think is stupid and they don't get it, but you know, for that five percent that really respond to it, that's all you need to have a successful thing. You look right. at anything that's on NBC or any of the major networks, and it's if it doesn't appeal to enough of the population that we're going to get this percentage of all these demographics watching, then it gets nixed. And I, I, I really like to – this is, is something we said I think almost exactly on the last podcast, but in the end of, of his letter he says, I don't know if you've seen this stuff uploaded to YouTube. There are sitcoms now on the internet. Some of them are brilliant. Some of them are meh. Some of them fucking suck. The, about the same ratio, uh, things are brilliant and meh and suck on your network, which yeah. is uh, – yeah, there's still going to be it's it's still going to be I think maybe the same amount of convincing because these percentages never seem to shift. There are always a certain amount of things that are great and there are always a certain amount of things that are terrible and there may be just more of everything, but it's still there's still not like a vastly greater percentage of brilliant things in the world. Yeah, there's probably not some massive untapped well of, you know, genius musicians and genius comedians that are not doing anything right now because for lack of a, a the correct gatekeeper. I, I think you're right that it's just a matter of... I think that having a more fractured media conglomerate that's controlling this sort of stuff will allow more smaller things with niche audiences to exist, which is really exciting to me. Well, I mean, it's it's we're recording the show right now based on that idea, right? Be this, precisely. We'd, we'd never <laughs> be able to pitch this to a radio station. I mean, I don't think. No, of course not. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but why would, why would there ever be enough people for a mass market radio station to broadcast a show where you know three 20 somethings talk about design three and white male 20 somethings don't I know, very <laughs> <laughs> but our our measure of success is going to be far different i know we're 
uh, you know, we're in the early stages of things where, you know, uh, numbers in the hundreds are going to be exciting to us. Um, but, you know, if, if we never get beyond a couple thousand people listening to the show, I think we're going to be thrilled. I don't yeah, think no, we absolutely. have to worry about I, I can't believe like anybody listened to the first episode, Matt. I can't believe anybody listened to it. I'm, <laughs> I'm, already, I'm already humbled. I know. I am too. So... Thank, yeah. you, thank you for the people who already have. <laughs> we, we can thank them personally at this point. <laughs> thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks, to Johnny, Bob. Thanks, thanks, to Aaron, Marge. Thanks to. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting because there still is, you know, without the app store infrastructure and the podcast. St- what is? I don't even. Is it a podcast store? What part of the iTunes store are we in? We're, we're in – it's not really a store. We're in the podcast section, which just, is the same as the iTunes store, but you just don't buy stuff. Okay. So yeah. so without the infrastructure of that podcast index, you know, it would be much more difficult for us to get anyone to listen to this and much, much more difficult to get people to subscribe to it in any meaningful way. So we are taking advantage of a gatekeeper still. Totally. But, Apple, but Apple sure as hell is not going to tell us what we can and can't put in our podcast. And, again, if we reach 100 people, 1,000 people, we'll be fucking super excited. And yep. that's going to be enough for us to continue doing it without having to – you know, match any ratings or appeal to anybody. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to break to you on the show, but we have reached 100 people, so that's <gasps> exciting. Oh Fuck. my but god! What is interesting though is that while we're taking advantage of that infrastructure, even stuff like new and noteworthy and and any promotions we're going to get, it's it's not going to do anything for us. We're in the design section; we're a little bit buried. We're already in new and noteworthy, but it's not really going to turn into anything. What's going to turn into stuff is other designers talking about the show yeah. and saying that they appreciate our conversation. That's that's the only thing we can really rely on, I think. It's a very interesting relation, relationship too, because the podcast index does not get anywhere near as much traffic as something like the actual app store does. In the app store, being new and noteworthy can very often be what makes or breaks the success of an app, just because of there are so many apps out there and so many people looking to buy apps. The numbers are huge on both sides, so sometimes getting that boost is hugely helpful. Where I, I totally understand that there's not that many people that are just like casually browsing 200 podcasts down in the design category <laughs> right. of the new and noteworthy section. Um, we're not going to find many listeners that way. So in a much smaller market of the podcast thing, it's much more important that we get the, you know, the grassroots message out there. If you're interested in supporting the On The Grid podcast, we have an interesting sponsorship model available. You can email us with your website, mobile application, maybe a logo or a poster, some sort of design work, and we will critique it on air, uh, both good and bad, which provides twofold value for you. One, you get some critical feedback on your thing to make it better. And two, you get some uh, ears that get to hear about your, uh, some of your product. And we're going to try to be as honest as possible. So we're not going to hold back, but we're at least going to point some people into your website, to your app, whatever you want us to critique. And hopefully it's a work in progress that we have something to actually discuss. And it's not going to be something where we say, oh, you should use this blue or this texture or anything like that. But really just give it an honest critique to say, this is what our thoughts are. Maybe this could help you out. Maybe this will guide you towards a final solution. You can email us at mail at onthegrid.co. You can also give us a call if you want to provide a short little description and some context. Uh, our number is 973-ON-GRID-2, which is 973-664-7432. And if you mail us, we'll send you rates and we'll tell you what we need from you. An image, so a little bit of context so we know what we're talking about. What's... I, 
I think this also transitions very nicely too in the conversation about Fifty Shades of Grey. I was going to bring Harry it up. Potter. I know because this that is that is a that is a very key example of an iTunes uh, miracle. Or it's, it's also insane. Amazon, but... Oh, it's so uh-huh. insane. Yeah. So so yeah. for those of you that didn't see Fifty Shades of Grey, outsold the entire Harry Potter series on Amazon UK uh, last week, sometime last week. So um, for those of you that aren't, are not familiar with Fifty Shades of Grey. It is a it's erotic novel that's in a series of three erotic novels, a three-part series that was sort of self-published and released. It was originally a Twilight fan fiction, actually, that the author had written about, you know, I think, that whoever is in Twilight, like vampires. They wrote it originally about vampires and then spun it off and took the vampire names out of it and made it into its own sort of thing and published it through a really, really small independent publishing house in Australia, but because of e-books... Um, ended up getting very, very popular over the course of, uh, of about a year, year and a half, and now has eclipsed J.K. Rowling Rowling as the, uh, the, the number one selling author in the Amazon UK uh, store, which is bonkers to me. Totally, totally bonkers. It, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not really a Harry Potter fan, but I think most people can speak highly of the artistic merit of Harry Potter versus the artistic merit of Fifty Shades of Grey, which I, I think most people would agree is... Kind of a, a, a low quality uh, softcore porn. Is that yeah. probably how it would be described? I've actually read a few articles by people that are like in the erotic markets and, and, and do read a lot of erotica and that sort of stuff. And apparently it is atrociously written. I haven't read any of Fifty Shades of Grey, um, but apparently it's just a really, really bad, like hokey uh, BDSM erotica. Uh, but it somehow just like struck a chord and took off. And what's what's amazing about it is that. First, the internet has allowed this thing to exist, so it's it's par- it's partially about like very easy distribution. Obviously, like pretty low cost. It's not it's not doesn't cost you a ton of money. And I think the huge one is lack of book cover. That's something I find very interesting. Mm. That the because this is a private thing, you're reading it on your Kindle. People don't have to see this like image of Fabio holding a woman while riding a horse through the sunset. <clears throat> Nobody's judging you, so you can read this wherever you want. Yeah, um, that is interesting. It's like it's the it's like the it's the opposite argument for designing a, a book cover that pops off the shelf, like designing an airport book cover or something. Yeah, which it's kind of an amazing example of anti-design. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people have speculated that that sort of privacy and the fact that you can buy the book from your like bedroom whenever you want, you don't have to go to a store to buy it. There's none of that embarrassment, and the fact that it is concealed in an ebook for most people uh, has led to its success. I, I don't know if I buy that though, because. There is much better erotica, presumably, that is also available via ebook um, that people are not buying en masse. So, I, so uh, is it just a zeitgeist thing? Is it a thing you heard of vaguely and then you buy it to check it out and then you yeah. get hooked on it? No, it's it's totally that because I mean, like, even my wife, we were talking about it one day while walking down to go get something to eat. She's like, everybody keeps talking about it, and I just want to read it just to see what everybody's talking about. So right. I think it's just yeah, like but a it, takes, it has it has to get to that point though. It doesn't go from zero to everyone talking about it without something important happening in between. Oh yeah, totally. I, I wonder if part of it is. So I, I mean, the author was you know amateur author, not a professional writer. Again, started his fan fiction for Twilight, which is already that to me is like the most horrible thing you could describe. Because Twilight, <laughs> Twilight is already sort of you know like the garbage bin of crappy cheap thrill media, and someone writing fan fiction based on that is just like a nightmare. So I think that part of it is actually that an amateur author sort of tackled these themes of sexuality and, and bondage uh, in a way that I guess 
maybe more people that were also new to those themes could sort of empathize with the like amateur perspective. Does that make if that makes any sense? Like I wonder if the fact that this is badly written and you know pretty hokey actually made it way more accessible than if it was a beautifully written you know erotica about BDSM. It was it's kind of like uh, Joe the Plumber of the previous election, right? Like here's yeah. here's the everyman of erotica, <laughs> the everyman version of <laughs> strapping you to a bed with leather straps. Oh my! You okay. say that in almost every episode, Dan. At some point, we can make a nice clip of just all the oh my's that you've done across the uh, the first five episodes. Listen, I'm a huge fan of George Takei. How could I not do it? Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm not criticizing. Okay. I'm just all observing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, Matt, it's an internet thing. Um, it's a meme. I don't know if you've. Oh, explain uh, memes to me, Dan. Explain yeah. what a what a meme is. Just just Google it. Uh, Google dot com, and then in the little mm-hmm. search field, go meme. Go mm-hmm. find I some see, stuff. I see Tub Girl. Should I click on this? Yes. Yes. Oh man! Absolutely. Uh, okay. That's a throwback. Okay. <laughs> That's a. Oof. Oh boy. Okay. Well, so this, this took a turn. <laughs> I I have a few thoughts about this whole Fifty Shades of Grey becoming mega popular thing. Um, one. I really like it in a sense. I, I love the thought that more people are reading about different kinky sexuality themes than they would be exposed to normally. Because in general, I think the entire world is way too uptight and Victorian about attitudes towards sex. So I like the idea that there's a bunch of people that wouldn't have read this otherwise that are now reading it thanks to either the ebook or, you know, because someone mentioned it at a, a water cooler. And I, it makes me think a lot about amateurism in any sort of media and how that might make something more relatable than if it's done from a professional's perspective. Like, I wonder Mm. if it's easier in some cases to be an amateur comedian or an amateur writer or an amateur musician that doesn't have any real experience or training to put something out there and have people respond to it because they can sort of empathize with the the effort. I I can understand that. I wonder, though, if if that really is, is, is where the success is coming from. Because the there's something to be said for that, but also... Obviously, writers learn a, ro- a lot by writing and spending time at it, and they learn what audiences do and do not respond to. I want, do you really think there's that much to the fact that they ju- this writer just does not know what they're doing and therefore have tapped into some sort of uh, cultural zeitgeist that, that other amateurs can relate to? I, I don't know. I, 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 we're all speculating here. I, I wonder if that's I, – I can't figure out another reason why it would become so popular as opposed to some other presumably much better written erotic novel. Because it, it's, it's not the only one that's only available. It's available through ebooks. Like I'm sure there's thousands of them. Oh, there actually is like a huge. If you look at the iTunes book list, pretty much everything is. It starts there. Then it's like another book by the same author, and then it's just copies of that book, mm-hmm. kind of the cheap erotic fiction. And there was even like uh, a movement of people. It was the I think it was not safe for work on the Twit Network. Who basically just just had people email in lines to an erotic uh, erotic book. They compiled them into an ebook. They put it on the iTunes store. They gave it a cover that looked very similar, and they started selling it for a very little amount of money. And very quickly, it, it rose to uh, third on the list behind the two Fifty Shades of Grey books or whatever the whatever <laughs> oh the other one is. God. So I don't know. I think there maybe it's just like the the perfect coincidence because. The cover's just right. It's, like, a little bit vague. I know I just talked about previously the importance of not being the cover, but, like, the cover designed in, in a thumbnail way as opposed to, like, the entry to a book. Mm-hmm. And then 
the the kind of lack of effort required to get into it kind of like i guess kind of like a reality show like you don't really have to pay that much attention if you miss a couple of things like you don't have to go back and reread it you can drift off you can probably pick it up in the middle all these things coming together to create this perfect non-committal book and this is why so, so many other books who just copy that formula are doing well because there's nothing uh, authentic about it that they can't copy yeah i guess maybe that's what i'm getting at it's, maybe it's not the, the fact that she's more or less an amateur writer and more the fact that it's like the same reality TV sort of like itch that it's scratching where it's just like this cheap garbage sort of cheap thrill sort of thing. And it's also tapping into sex, which is obviously sex always sells. I, I guess I guess my point is that I wonder if it was a much better novel, not reality TV, but, you know, instead the newsroom, if it would ever have sold as much. Uh, and I guess probably not just because it's not it's too much mental effort to get into something with a real story and with real character development. when maybe you just want, you know, a cheap thrill. Yeah, I guess if you're if you're sitting in an advertiser's office and and pulling out the bullet points that make it successful, you could probably pull out all the bullet points that just make humans react in a in a shallow way, right? Yeah. So maybe it's just that it's just got all those things perfect. It, it happened to do it. It's a perfect cocktail of cheap. <laughs> and it's like it's like the monkeys typing away at a keyboard. Eventually, they're going to write Shakespeare. This is kind of like the opposite of that. Monkeys typing away at a keyboard. Eventually, they're going to write Fifty Shades of Grey, and they did. So there you go. Oh, you just called the author a monkey. Yeah, wow. that's okay. I mean, uh, if I get criticized for that, that's totally fine. But it, I'm, do you know what I'm talking about, right? The uh, the idea that monkeys typing away at keyboards yes, for long I, enough. Yes, I've heard the idiom, yeah. There's so much media being created that eventually you're going to hit something like this, and it, it could have come from a famous author, it could have come from an amateur author, it happened to come from an amateur author, and it, it struck all the chords. It's the perfect cocktail of not too hard to read, not too much to think about, it's got dicks doesn't have a cover he's gonna be embarrassed of <laughs> there you go all the things that make a good book that, that's all of them okay so I, we're talking about infrastructures and how all these various gatekeepers allow people to put small scale media out there and, and subsist off of it um in a lot of way, like, you know, Twitter and Facebook are also part of this infrastructure and they're part of how you get the word out about these things and how you connect with your audience. Uh, and I thought there was a very important news story that came out this week about Facebook, which was a, a startup that was using Facebook advertising to advertise their Facebook page. Did some really thorough analytics on the traffic that was coming from Facebook and found out that a vast, vast majority of the traffic they were paying for for the advertising on Facebook was, in fact, you know, automated bot traffic. Right. Uh, and then they, they mentioned numbers like 80%, and it, it depends on how you sort of cut it. But either way, the general consensus among the tech community seems to be that Facebook is either not doing enough to filter out its bot traffic and its advertising, uh, or even going as far as to maliciously inject more bot traffic into the advertising numbers than is actually there. And, and to me, this actually made perfect sense. Like, the company is, in a lot of ways, floundering right now because they just went public, and now they have all the pressure of these shareholders and you know the their stock price to force them to be constantly proving they're making money and iterating on the platform and i think in a lot of ways the ad model is just not working out for, for them or anybody else yeah i i thought it was I, first of all i wondered how how true those numbers were yeah if 80 if it really was 80 percent of of bots because look i know i'm sure it's incredibly difficult to run a network and keep bots off of it especially a network as big as facebook but 80 percent seems huge so that was kind of my first reaction but let's just take it. Let's just pretend this is all real and 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 roll with it. It's kind of unbelievable that not not so much that it could happen, but that Facebook doesn't monitor it better. Yeah, especially I mean, they're 
Facebook is a massive, massive company. Like I, I think about them a lot, not just their own position in the market, but how many other businesses they support, how many companies only have only exist based on the Facebook platform. There are huge, huge integral puzzle pieces to this entire ecosystem of networks, uh, and the thought that that if their advertising really is this bad uh, is, is a bit scary. And I, I really wondered how many calls they were getting from their much larger app. Maybe the startup that wrote about this, because they had a relatively small data set, they were talking about thousands of hits. But I'm sure they have advertisers on Facebook that are paying you know exorbitant amounts of money to get hundreds of thousands and millions of, of eyeballs on their content. And if that same percentage is broken down to that scale, that's a, that's a phone call you don't want to get from you know whoever's advertising on that, on that scale. Yeah, it, it just brings up a lot of questions of how sustainable the advertising model is. Uh, which makes me again think about Dalton Caldwell's project, the uh, app.net, which I don't want to, like it's, he's got like a four or five days left or something. And it's, it doesn't seem to be, does not seem like it's going to hit his goal. He could, something could happen in the, in the last, you know, the last few minutes before the buzzer, but it seems like he's not going to hit his half a million dollar goal, which means it's not going to happen right now. But I do think he has a point. He keeps saying that if it's not him, that does it. Somebody at some point is going to build a social infrastructure that, favors the user instead of the advertisers. And I think it, it has to happen. We talked previously about Nielsen boxes and how those, that's kind of like the previous way of tracking people. And it's this mm-hmm. very archaic form of, of tracking people basically for advertisers. There's no real way of saying that this is actually anywhere near the number. And I think as we maybe get more accurate tracking systems, we might find that ads are even less effective than we, they ever were previously. And they're probably just growing less and less effective because we are becoming immune to them. And how are we supposed, like, we, they, they sit on very dedicated pieces of sites, and if they don't sit on those very dedicated pieces of sites, we get, become very annoyed by them, we start going back to websites. There are apps like Readability who are trying to make the web more legible, more readable, uh, and make it more about content. And we're, I think we're just becoming too smart for it. So inevitably, maybe we do have to build products that are meant for the user, not meant for the advertiser. It's, the way he, the way Dalton has, has explained social media networks and platforms as infrastructure instead of as media companies delivering content is really compelling to me. I can totally see a future where there is essentially like a premium social network. And social network is, the, is a dumb, terrible phrase for it, but a premium utility that connects you with other people that if you pay for it, you get access to really excellent content. It's not drowning in ads. And if you don't, the rest of the internet becomes this sort of asshole just full of advertisements. And it becomes like the back of, you know, the local newspapers where it's just full of bright advertisements and crappy stuff that's barely subsisting. And I, I'd happily pay any amount of money for access to this premium internet of the future where things are clean and make sense and are catered to me as opposed to advertisers. It's interesting you say the premium, premium internet of the future. Um, you, d- you managed to do that in a way that wasn't a scary net neutrality thing. Yeah, um, I, I actually <laughs> was thinking a lot about the net neutrality sort of, because it's like, it is, it's, it's a tangential argument. And there are people that are going to be, you know, still using Facebook or Google and whatever the hell else it is in the future. And they're not going to care about the privacy of their data or about the advertisements they're bombarded with all the time. But it is interesting that you could very easily, like he could, he could build a platform that allows for access to better, cleaner, more accessible content that you do have to pay for just to get access to. But it's, it's coming at it from the other angle. It's that neutrality from the perspective of you know the user as opposed to the perspective of the, the company and they want to take advantage of it. Which could be a, an amazing approach. Maybe... Yeah, it really could I, be. I just, I just think, I think you're right, though, where it would be split amongst people who care and people who don't care. Yeah. And they're, they're probably even... Or there's probably even going to be free internet in the future. Like, the, Google is pushing that. Yeah, we didn't talk about it last week, but Google Fiber... Uh, could potentially provide free ad-based internet for people in the future. And 
you know, maybe if that's what you, if you don't care all that much, maybe that's what you want. But I don't, I don't think Facebook is ever going to be a company that can do something like this. There's because I don't want to keep using the term low friction. Um, we're kind of guilty of saying it too much. <laughs> but yeah, someone, someone made fun of us on Twitter, guys. <laughs> Which is fair. We say we say it a lot. No, it's good. I, I, I want I want to be held honest by people. <laughs> I, I do too. Actually, I'd, I'd I'd prefer to get feedback and make our show better than ignore it. Everybody, so, keep us honest. Make fun of us. We'll try to stop saying skeuomorphic low friction. <laughs> so oh Facebook is this very easy portal or very very easy entry, and because of that, they would lose so many users by either charging people or coming up with some model that is about the users as opposed to about the advertisers. So I don't know if that means that it eventually becomes so annoyingly filled with ads or like so overrun with bots that we, uh, the people that care have to move on to another platform and everybody else treats it like MySpace. But I, I really wonder where they're going to go with this because yeah. I don't know how to sustain this kind of fake evaluation of their company. Mm-hmm. We we ju- I mean we just saw Dig sell for like half a million dollars when it was previously the sixty six million dollar website yeah. or sixty seven million dollar website. Obviously, Facebook is not worth what I mean. The the stock market is saying it right now. It's not worth what everybody was saying it is worth. And maybe maybe they'll figure it out and it'll get better. But I don't know. Things move too fast for that to happen. I think. And a big part of me, like generally, I think Facebook is mostly just a drain on people's time and passions. And I, I don't, I don't like it or appreciate it. So part of me would like to see Facebook just sort of tank and go under. But the idea of how many things are dependent on Facebook is just horrifying to think of what the ramifications would be if it were to go somewhere, you know, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, they employ every designer in the whole world. If Facebook yeah. went out of business, everybody <laughs> no. that I admire in graphic design would be out of a job. Oh, then they would just go do startups all over again instead of being that's, a that's what Facebook. I want. That's what I want. Yeah. I want them to go do their own things. <laughs> Right. Well, wait, what about that? Though? I want to tell strangers what to do with their lives. That's all I want to do. <laughs> like, what about another angle where um, there's so much connectivity into Facebook? What if they actually made that kind of like a the gatekeeper scenario where you actually had to pay money or something like that or have some sort of developer thing like Apple does to be able to broadcast into Facebook? So that Essentially just businesses pay money and, and people don't? Yeah, yeah. So it's the idea that if you want your stuff to be on the social network, that you actually have to upfront give money or have some sort of subscription that you have to pay in order to have that stuff exist on Facebook. I'm sure that would be. I actually think that probably could happen. Uh, people would lose their minds for a short period of time, and then it would probably be fine. Yeah. And I, th- I think that it's kind of already a little bit like that. Probably. I think if you go to start a Facebook page from scratch and you're not already some giant, make a huge celebrity or organization. It's probably really hard to get any sort of traction with that page unless you pay to advertise. Right. So it's sort of like yeah. you either pay to play or you already have some huge network influence to help you sort of get something started. I mean, I'm sure that the vast, vast majority of Facebook pages out there for companies are just completely like vacant. No one ever visits them. No one ever cares about them. Uh, so it's already a small portion of the people that are on the system that actually get recognized and benefit from it. Yeah. Actually, there was there was a, an I didn't even post this to the doc this week, but there was an encouraging piece of news that came up. I don't know if you guys noticed that the New York Times is now making more money from subscribers than they are from advertisers. Mm-hmm. I yep. did not know that, but that's awesome. Yeah. So okay, so we talked about Facebook as being this very easy thing to enter. Obviously, the New York Times is a very thoughtful piece of journalism, and it's we we've had scary moments where. Instagram was valued as a as a more valuable company than New York Times, so that's scary. But mm-hmm. we 
maybe are proving that, that the world isn't so bad, or at least maybe the uh, thoughtful, smart people of the world aren't so bad, and that the New York Times is going to make more money off the people who subscribe to it than the advertisers that put ads on the website and on the, in the paper. My first question is scale. So they're making more from subscribers, but is it because they've lost so much advertising or because more people yeah, okay. are willing to pay for it? Oh, you, okay, so you got right to the core. <laughs> is, that, is that where you were going with it? <laughs> well, print and ad dollars did dip. Uh, let's see. It says dipped 6.6%. 6. So that's part of it. But okay. circulation revenue was up 8.3%. So I mean, that's great. Like, ad dollars are down more people to are paying for million. it. Uh, sub- circulation revenue is up to $233 million. Wow. Just the fact that people are starting to pay. I mean, presumably almost always people are reading it online and not actually getting a physical newspaper. Right. Which is to say that the fact that more people are starting to get willing to pay for quality content when they very well could go to any one of a million shitty free news websites and get the same news, I say in air quotes. I love the fact that more people are willing to start to pay for quality stuff. And that, that's a great sign to me. So I think that you know maybe, maybe it, we're not all so, uh, so screwed and we can actually move towards a system where people pay for things that they value. Uh, I don't think Facebook is the way to do it. But this is also being announced at the exact same time that like the Daily is is laying off about fifty people, and they're I, I think they lost like thirty million dollars. So you guys from you guys must be familiar with the Daily, the iPad magazine. Yep. Yeah, yep. I've heard of it. I've actually never experienced. I've never used it or really seen it. I've just heard of it before. So maybe fill me in on it. It was pretty nice. Like I, I went and checked it out right when it first came out for the iPad, and I mean it was pretty nice just because they kind of considered the format more than just trying to cram a PDF onto the screen. Yeah, they really did take care. You know, I I, I don't I don't have a subscription myself, but I've I've played around with it a little bit, and they did take care to design a magazine for a tablet, not you know export a print magazine to a tablet. But I feel I feel like there's kind of a sum like between these three things, I feel like there's kind of a summation of all these points. In that, you know, these kind of easy, easy points of entry are not going to be able to charge subscriptions. But then these big, either either these old um, old guards in New York Times who are, who continue to put out content are making money, or the daily is not really working. The one the one thing I think that is a problem there moving into the future is that they are so general that the New York Times can continue because they put out great content and people are so used to it and they, they can see the value in an entire piece even though it has a very general scope. Mm-hmm. The Daily, however, because it's so new and it has a very general scope, I feel like there are so many other better new pieces of new media or, sorry, content coming from new media that why would you ever pay for everything to be in one place when you can go and grab the individual pieces that are so much better? Like, I wonder why I would ever read a sports section in the Daily when, like, Bill Simmons publishes Grantland, and why would I ever read uh, the technology section of the Daily when I can go read, like, Marco Arment and, and Daring Fireball and All Things Digital or, or things that yeah. people put out very specific things that they love. Or even, like, you know, bringing it back to the podcast, hopefully people who love design, who want to talk about design, are more interesting than a kind of uh, general overview of design in a in a much bigger magazine from somebody who doesn't do it every day and doesn't care about it as much. Like, like Smashing Magazine? <sighs> well, I mean, they have... Now you got to specific... name names, Dan. We're going to burn uh, bridges on episode well, five. Uh, Smashing Magazine has a very specific focus, and that's like, that actually is what I'm talking about. They focus on, like, kind of web tutorials and, like, giving you links to things that are, you know, resources. Um, <laughs> Good word for that. Okay. So I, I can appreciate that for what it is. And that is, I, but I would say Smashing Magazine is the model of the future. It's 
talking to a specific audience and doing it in a way that they can appreciate. You can't argue that Smashing Magazine isn't doing it in a way that their audience appreciates. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. And I mean, uh, would it be the point, like, the way that they make money is that they publish books off of, like, either stuff that was on their site or elsewhere. Um, and also advertising. Their site's yeah. covered in it. Yeah. And would they still exist the way that they do if they switched to, like, a subscription sort of model? That actually... That might be true because their thing is about so much content, but there's not as maybe not as much thought put into every little piece of content. Whereas the yeah. New York Times is putting a lot of thought. They do put out a lot of content, but every piece of content is obviously going to be going to have a lot of thought, going to have a lot of people looking over it to make sure that it's correct. Yeah, like it's, it's not just that. The New York Times too. It's really important. To know, they actually like physically send reporters to like countries all over the world to like get these stories. They have a physical infrastructure that no blog ever has. Like, right. Yeah. So many blogs are reliant on the New York Times sending reporters to places to get stories so they can reword them and republish them on their blog. That if the New York Times were to cease to exist, we would lose all of that first primary source uh, information, which is why they're so valuable. But so mm-hmm. I'm 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 making the prediction of the future that is the two things coming together. It's the the Smashing Magazine thing where it's a very specific focus, but the New York Times attention to detail and care, and putting that attention to detail and care into the one thing, and doing it very very well. And then you just go to the sources that focus on the topics that you love, and you subscribe to those. That's, that's what magazines kind of always were. It's just that magazines as a physical medium, you know, died out a long time ago in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah, like <laughs> yeah. Wired is like a very. Uh, specific focus but it's still broad in its tech no, focus Wired is actually right? quite broad I'm thinking more like I've subscribed what, Golf to, Digest <laughs> yeah I mean I've subscribed to acoustic guitar quarterly and you know very very strangely specific like bicycle magazines in the past um, that deliver the kind of content like there's some magazines that are still putting out content that you can't get on the internet because there are only a few people that know that kind of stuff and they're not on the internet because they don't trust it you know stuff like yeah. that so I, I do think it's, I think you have a good point it's just a matter of getting those people those experts and those really niche sort of communities over to some sort of more digestible digital distributed format. Mm-hmm. And then build this that goes, oh. free idea, free <laughs> idea to any listener. <laughs> this is a full circle because then you think of the idea that there's all these uh, sort of niche market sort of um, publications or subscriptions or whatever they are. And then, you know, where do you go to find all of these? Do you have to go to the individual locations or do you have to go to a gatekeeper uh, to find maybe like a broad range of these things, right? I guess I mean, you could, yeah, around. you could bring it back to iTunes and say they still all have to filter back to iTunes to get in your iPad or on your iPad. I mean, I mean, I, my preferred model is something like a Google Reader, where you use a very open technology mm-hmm. and you allow anyone to pull something into that. Obviously, mm. the, the problem there is the money again. It's always going to yep. come back to the money of yep, it. Yep, it's yep. hard to make money on Google Reader. It's very, it's much easier to make money on an app store. So speaking of infrastructures, uh, we, we, you mentioned the dig sale uh, a little while ago, Matt, and how it was valued much higher was, than yeah, it ended up selling for. $67 million, and now it's, it's sold for half a million. Yeah, which is, which is not a good that, – that's a, that's a pretty big sale. That's definitely on the clearance <laughs> rack. Um, <laughs> I've never got a so, shirt for that much off. That's amazing. But wow. So, so I, I remember you know, two months ago or so, the dig, the dig folks announced they were going to like sort of throw everything out and start from scratch – and they were going to try and release a new version of Dig in six weeks. I, I didn't really take that article seriously, honestly. I thought it was kind of a joke. Uh, but, you know, six weeks later, here we are with a new Dig, Dig V1. This was tweeted at us, so I'm sure you guys looked at it. What did you think yeah. of the new Dig? Okay, so step one, I think they did a good job. It's well, if, you, if I were just imagining this as a totally new website, it's well-designed. 
the the content's pretty good. I read a couple articles. Uh, it's easy to kind of read through. I mean, it, it suffers a little bit from like a Pinterest view or something. Like there is this, or like this. Um, I guess it's probably influenced by newspapers, of course. The the column grid view. I don't know if that's like. I don't know. Sometimes just reading up and down is a little bit easier on the web than uh, hopping back and forth between different size modules. But mm-hmm. whatever you think of that, it does look good. So that's effective. Mm-hmm. The 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 scary or problem part for me was that now everything has to go through Facebook, and if I want to interact with it at all, I have to kind of like give dig all my personal information. Mm-hmm. So that that was a problem. But I mm-hmm. have to say, I I was very impressed that they were willing to do kind of exactly what we talked about last episode, destroy everything and rebuild. And I'm, I've read through their comments and they're getting so much flack for it. Which really? makes sense. Oh yeah. Every, I, I don't know if I've read a, co- a positive comment on their blog yet. Everybody is screaming and kicking. A lot of people are screaming about the Facebook thing, which I just was upset about too. So I get that. But I have to say kudos to them for do, trying to do something new with this product that was clearly dying. Yeah. For, yeah. However many users they had, it was very clearly dying, and Reddit is doing it so much better. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, part of me is like, I wasn't ingrained enough in the Dig community to know how vibrant it still was. Because people say things, people say Flickr is dead. People say it all the time. But Flickr is still the absolute best place for you to go on the internet if you want to know something about old bikes. For some <laughs> reason, I, I, I swear to you, I swear to you, for some reason, yeah. people that are frame builders across the world people that i've been around through all of the, the bike boom in both europe and the united states are all on Flickr, and they are constantly posting amazing photographs you can't find anywhere else and come and you can find whole stories in the comments that you can never find on any wikipedia or for research about some company like Flickr is the best place for that and if someone were to shut down Flickr and call it dead i would be furious because even though it's dead in the sense that it's not getting a million users every single day or some massive evaluation it's become extremely useful to a certain part of the of the community so right. i don't know I, I can't say for sure like dig was definitely it was definitely on life support right. uh, but and I, I, I actually i was part of the group that kind of jumped ship like i had i always had a reddit account and i always had a dig account and uh, i you know there was a period of time where i liked dig a bit more and then when they made the switch from version 3 to version 4 i just completely jumped ship and went over to Reddit because they made it, they allowed so much content to flood in that they made it completely useless because there was no, Dig was a filter, and by not letting it be a filter anymore, it's just the internet again. Yeah. yeah it's just everything. Yeah. So I'm sure there were some communities within it that were doing fine and were happy to keep using it, but I think they just, it was, it, the site had been poisoned and they needed to suck out the poison and what they decided to do was kill it and and start over again. Yeah. Well, and they took out like the the most uh, I guess pure bits of it too, because it's extremely filtered and it's extremely simple. Like there's only so many things actually show up on that the single page now, where yeah. the original dig was just like uh, a cluster of everything on the internet onto one website. It is. It it does have so much less content, and I I don't know if they have plans to bring back sections and stuff, but. You really can get, I don't know, 25 articles on the site at most, and then you have to maybe wait a day. So mm-hmm. you're not going to get – they're not going to get the repeat traffic they used to have because it's just not nearly as vibrant. Um, yeah. Well, doesn't but, that make it more like a little bit skeuomorphic where it's almost like the daily newspaper where there's only a set amount of things and then you have is, to wait until the yeah. next day? It's clearly it's clearly influenced by a newspaper, and it's not like you actually do have to wait a day. I'm just saying that our, the content doesn't become fresh enough to care until the next day. Yeah, at least I've noticed. It, it, as maybe maybe it'll pick up speed a little bit, 
Um, but it also looks a little bit more curated. Like, I noticed they have kind of funny headlines on top of things. Like, they'll, uh, you know, one thing might be called Microsoft, and it's about a, a photo of uh, used on Microsoft desktop. But then also there's a, an article about a Ferrari running over cop's foot, and the, the headline, and, like, the little tag is, and that's why you always take the ticket. So oh, okay. it's clearly being curated to a certain degree. I just wonder if it's, it's, it's kind of dancing that line because obviously the previous one was content overload. I wonder if this is kind of content underwhelming, that if you have this such a high-traffic news site, you probably have to refresh the content a little bit more for it to be interesting and keep that traffic up. Yeah, I, I, I have a few feelings about it. Like, first of all, I, wasn't, I had a Dig account. I, don't, I never really used it, so I wasn't active on the, the original Dig. And this, to me, doesn't seem like something... I know it's new to Dig, but it's not new to the internet. Like This website looks like any other masonry news website out there, and the content doesn't seem particularly compelling to me, coming from an outside perspective. So in that sense, I almost feel like it's a little bit too little too late for this sort of format. Like Two years ago, this would be amazing, but now you know we have The Verge, we have all these other websites that are doing similar things, mm-hmm. presumably much better. Yep. My other thought is, okay, if you're going to build something that's totally new and throw everything out... Why even bring that Dig name with you? Like, what is I mean, Dig, as we mentioned, was on its was on life support. It's a dying brand. What do they gain from bringing that with them, other than a bunch of pissed off people that it's not the same as the old Dig? That's true. Yeah, it could it could it could easily be a totally different website. And instead of calling it Dig, you call it uh, Vote or whatever. It would it would be the same thing. It doesn't really leverage any of the Dig brand. Yeah, and it's kind of weird too looking at it because Dig the the big thing was being able to like upvote downvote you know in the sort of Dig way, and they had the entire brand wrapped around that. And now when you go look at like the actionable bits, like the sharing bits, they're so small and like insignificant to everything else. Almost like they're saying yeah. there's a lot of content here. Oh, and if you want to share, there's this tiny little link attached to each one. Right, and and sharing. There's no commenting. It's really just tweeting. It it really leverages every other network. There's very little that's actually dig. Yeah, it's mostly Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, which is I mean, in some ways that sort of makes sense. This is the kind of web that I've always I've never been a big fan of the like crazy social oversharing, upvote everything, downvote everything sort of thing. Which is why I didn't use the original dig. This sort of thing where someone's curating for me and telling me what to read and look at is much more compelling to me. But it just seems like this has already been done by other people in, in better ways. So I, I'm not sure. What, I I love the fact, like you said, Matt, that they did just throw it out and start over from scratch. I admire that to, to no end. I, I wonder where this is going to go for them, though. I, I think I tweeted this, but I'd be very interested to talk to somebody on the team who was yeah. responsible for some of these decisions. Because it's a, it's a ballsy move, and it's a it's a uh, internet icon, and to change everything so quickly must have been a very hard decision. Yeah. So, and I already reached out to them. So maybe, maybe if they if they write back, we'll try to talk to somebody. We but. just need to get to two hundred subscribers, and then we'll be able to get anybody <laughs> we want. <because. laughs> Thank you for listening to On the Grid, episode six. We'd love if you get in touch with us. So send us an email, mail at onthegrid.co. Give us a call at nine seven three on grid two. We might play your call on the show. Or tweet, hashtag, on the grid. We'd love you to send us links, feedback, suggestions, anything that fits in 144 characters. Finally, leave us comments or feedback on iTunes. It really helps the show. We appreciate everyone listening. Thanks to Girlfriends for the music. Until next week.